Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Is we don't like to play games with overpriced assets. And that's the world that we're in now. The Fed is driving the S&P, which is overpriced, the Standard & Poor's 500, a broad measure of the U.S. market. It's driving it from already substantially overpriced into what I would call dangerously overpriced. This is about the boundary line. We expect on the seven-year horizon 1% only plus inflation from the U.S. market. Now, you might be saying, Joseph, he sounds correct. Jeremy Grantham here sounds correct. The Fed has been driving this market, and they drove it into overvalued territory. And maybe, like he says, even dangerously overvalued territory. So you may be in agreement with Grantham here. The only issue with this statement from Grantham is it was said in November 11th of 2010. And in terms of his predictions... We expect on the seven-year horizon, 1% only plus inflation from the U.S. market. He predicted 1% returns plus inflation, and the market is up 276%, not counting dividends. So he was a little bit off in his prediction, just slightly. Now, I'm not trying to give Mr. Grantham a hard time here. The truth is investing is difficult, and timing the market is even more difficult. Now, when I'm trying to buy things in my portfolio, I, like everyone else, want to buy things that are undervalued, that will go up in value over time. I don't want to buy assets with future expected returns that are negative. That's not what I'm looking to buy. And if I buy in the midst of a bubble, then my future expected returns are extremely low. Now, the age-old YouTube question of whether or not we're in a bubble is something that will never likely fully be solved until after the fact, until after we see the bubble pop. But what we can see right now is that valuations look a little frothy. I now agree with Jeremy Grantham. Ten years later, it does look like things are becoming a little frothy. Let's go ahead and look at some of the data here of the S&P 500. The first and most obvious one we can look at is the P-E ratio on a forward basis of the S&P 500. This is on analyst expectations of what these companies will earn over the next four quarters. And currently, the PE for the S&P 500 is 21, 21.2 overall. Now, if we take a quick glance at history, we can see that this is pretty expensive, relatively speaking. In fact, as far as I can see, you have to go back to 2001 to get back up to this level, 2002. I don't consider that a really good sign that we have to go back to the 2000s to get to the same valuation level. That's the dot-com bubble. That's when a lot of good companies like Microsoft and Pfizer and Cisco had their valuation chopped in half over the course of two years. So we definitely don't want to be buying companies at the height of the dot-com bubble. But looking right now with a 21 Ford PE ratio, we are getting close to it. We're getting up there. Things are looking a little bit enthusiastic, a little bit frothy in the big cap stocks. Now, I realize that P.E. ratios don't always tell the full story. In fact, a lot of the companies today, I think, are much more resilient with their business models than they were in the early 2000s. Like a lot of technology companies have moved from just being hardware sellers to now they're subscription businesses with that highly reliable, sticky income. And in some cases, I think it's deserved to have a higher P.E. ratio. People often remind you, the Amazon once had a higher P.E. ratio. Lots of good companies did. Tesla had a higher P.E. ratio as well. And that seems to be coming down quarter after quarter. 
So there's lots of companies that start off with very high P.E. ratios, and as their earnings grow, that P.E. comes down. So just thinking optimistically, maybe the P.E. ratio is a little bit different now than it was then. Uh, That might be the case, but we can also look at some other valuation methods. We can look at this completely separate metric called price to sales. See, the difference between the price to sales and the price to earnings is earnings is a net profit of the company. So that's how much they're actually earning. The sales is just the revenue. So without the earnings, that's just revenue. And even the price to sales of the S&P 500 has ventured up into a category that we have not seen in a very long time. In fact, I don't know any other time that we've seen it. The forward price to sales as of August is 2.83. And looking back on the graph, again, that looks a little expensive. Just a few years ago, it was down in the twos, and then it was down in the one and a halfs, and then it was down just above one. In the 2007-2008 market crash, it dipped down to 0.75. So you're really buying companies at a good deal if you bought then. But in 2010, when Jeremy Grantham said that the market was overvalued and it was being pumped up by the Fed, the price to sales was only 1.25. The valuation of these companies on a price to sales basis is over double that point. So whether you're looking at a price to sales or a P ratio, you can try to justify either. But any way that I look at it, things look a little bit expensive in the S&P 500 right now. It looks a little bit frothy, and it's becoming difficult to find deals in the market and to find undervalued companies. The question is always, what do we do? Because we can't sit around waiting to invest year after year after year and potentially risk the market going up without us. So what do we do in this situation? Do we invest in bonds? Now, if we're looking at bonds, we have another valuation metric we can look at. This is a graph that shows the forward earnings yield of the S&P 500 in red. And then we have the bond yield of the 10-year U.S. Treasury bond. That's in blue. And you can see that in 1979 to almost 2000, they traded close to each other. They were pretty close to each other in terms of forward yield. But then they started to separate And right now, the forward earnings yield of the S&P 500 is 4.66 compared to the 10-year treasury, which is 1.32. If you buy the 10-year treasury right now, you are locking in a loss. You're locking in a real negative return. Now, I don't know if there's going to be hyperinflation like Michael Burry's predicting, but I do know with a lot of confidence that inflation will be above 1.32%. And right now, just comparing those numbers... One of them looks a little bit better than the other. The Ford earnings yield of 4.66% from the S&P 500 looks much better than the bond yield. And of course, the results of these very low interest rates and bond yields is that savings accounts, even high yield savings accounts, are giving out 0.5% interest rate. You're not going to be earning any money with that. In fact, again, you're going to be losing money to inflation. So every week that goes by, every year that goes by that you keep your money in a savings account, you know that you're having a real loss, that that money is slowly drying up over time. Now, when I look over this, all the various valuation metrics that we have, all the tools at our disposal to see whether we can buy value or not, I try to find different ways to put my money to work. And stocks certainly aren't the only one. They're not the only way that you can invest. We can go ahead and look at other areas of the market, but likewise, they look a little frothy right now. I heard this report. I read this headline. To me, it sounds fake, but it's on CNBC. It says somebody just paid $1.3 million for a picture of a rock. Now, that seems a little bit crazy to me, but this is true. Someone spent 400 Ether on a JPEG picture of a rock. This is NFTs. I think this is the peak frothy levels of the market going on here. And this isn't cherry picking here. I'm not cherry picking examples to fit some narrative. This market of NFTs, 
this speculative market is exploding. CryptoPunk blasts through $1 billion in lifetime sales as NFT speculation surges. Lucas Matney tweeted out, When I published this back in April, the cheapest CryptoPunks were 30000 Today, the cheapest one available for sale is just shy of 300000 It's gone up 10 times in value since April. And again, this is digital JPEG art. This is what's being sold here. And this is a continued trend I've seen. I've seen even investors on YouTube that used to have channels that were focused on dividend investing or at least buying highly productive cash flow generative companies that are stable and reliable. And now they're buying NFTs, they're buying crypto, they're buying Pokemon cards. This is a common trend. People are trying to find value everywhere they can. In a lot of cases, they're seeking it outside of stable investments. The price of Ethereum is up 119,000% since 2015. Just a few years ago, you could buy one Ethereum for 99 cents. Now it's $3,374. In just the trailing year, it's up 677%. This is what lures in a lot of people. This is what gets you to want to buy this instead of stocks. You want to follow along with these amazing gains that these speculative, non-productive assets over the past few years. Solana is another crypto that just in May of 2020 was trading for 95 cents just May of last year. Now it's $116. It's up 13,800% in that short amount of time. And you can even look at the graph here. In the past one month, it's up 258%. Why bother with stocks when you can hit the next hype coin and see your money double or triple in the course of one month? The temptation to rush in to highly speculative, non-productive assets has never been greater. We see examples shared across social media of people hitting it big. And rarely do we see the examples of people that have lost tremendous amounts of money. But we know full well that every time something can go up in value this quickly, it can come down just as quickly. And it often does. I'm old enough to remember when these SPACs from Chamath Polyhapatia were the only thing that people talked about online. They wanted to get a part of all these SPACs that he was coming out with. And there was a lot of enthusiasm about them. But then soon after, we had the inevitable wipeout in valuation for almost all of them. In fact, across the board, it was over 20% down from their all-time highs. Remember when cannabis stocks were all anyone would talk about? This happened in 2020. In fact, you can see the returns aren't that great until we enter into 2020. And then cannabis stocks really started to pick up. In fact, up until February of 2021, the returns were 223%. They're incredibly good. But then people that bought at the peak here of February are continuing to see their value decline as this ETF of cannabis stocks goes down more and more every single month. This is another category of stocks that were surrounded by hype. So NFTs seem like the next big thing, but in my opinion, they seem incredibly dangerous to speculate on. So what I plan on doing, even after looking at all the alternative investments and looking at the valuation metrics, we can try to argue whether or not things look expensive or cheap or what our best options are, but I still come back to fully believe that you're at more danger of losing money by keeping your money consistently out of the market than keeping it in. The longer you're in the market, the more buffer room you're going to have, the longer you're going to be earning dividends, and it does make a difference over a long period of time. Here are my dividend payments for just this month. JP Morgan paid me their $150 dividend. I get this every three months, another $150. Verizon paid me $43 because I crossed the X dividend date before selling out of this company. So they gave me the last $45 they'll pay me in dividends. Then we have Jeppy paying me $98. Then we have MasterCard with $6, Apple with $74, then Costco with $29, Realty Income Corp with their monthly $15, and then AbbVie with $61. This is just this month. 
and this month is a lower month for me. If I go to the software I built for the Patreon, I can see my monthly expected income. This month in August, it's lower. It's $304. But next month in September, it's $507 in dividends. And then in October, it's $828. Based off the payout schedules of the past year, this is what it looks like on an ongoing basis. $300, $500, $800, $300, $500, $800, and so on and so forth. Every month I get a different amount, but overall it averages out to around $564 a month. Now the cool thing is, is this software breaks it down on an hourly wage basis, assuming that you work a full-time job, 40 hours a week, no vacations, no time off, 52 weeks a year, I would earn $3.26 an hour. That is the power of a portfolio. That's the power of the markets. And if you really think about that, it's so incredibly cool. That's like having an extra worker go out and earn that wage for you every single workday, 40 hours a week, five days a week, 52 weeks a year. That is pretty incredible. On a daily basis, it's $18.58. On a weekly basis, it's $130. So this is what my portfolio is producing right now in dividends. And this is my primary goal, to grow this number over time and to grow it very safely and very consistently. Now, if we go to the other page to look at my portfolio and historical performance, I can see the amount of income that I've earned on a monthly basis. This is what this graph looks like over time. You can see that generally speaking, as I contribute more money every single month, as I reinvest dividends and I buy more cash producing assets, this goes up over time. We have some months where it dips more than others, but over time, this continues to climb. Last month, it was $430 and the high so far is $525. Now, if I look at this income on a year over year basis, this is what it looks like. The light blue here, just $9 here, $16 here, that is in 2018. And then in 2019, we have the dark blue, in 2020, we have the light green, and in 2021, we have the dark green. So you can see the growth of the income year after year. This makes it a little bit more comparable. Every single year, it's going up dramatically. We can look at May, for instance. In May of 2018, when I first started my portfolio, I earned $21 in dividends. And then in May of 2019, I earned 97. So I over tripled the amount that I earned year over year. And then May of 2020, I earned $217 in dividends. And then May of 2021 was my best month ever, earning $525 in dividends. Now, this is incredibly rapid growth, and it's difficult to achieve this. I've had to put a lot of my discretionary income in my portfolio continually. I've had to focus on very high cash flow, high yielding assets, and this is something that's very motivating to see. And I hope that as 2021 goes along, I'll continue to beat it month after month after month. I want this dark green bar to be significantly higher than the light green one. I wanna beat 2020 every single month. Now this software has a lot of cool features. It's included in the Patreon. Unfortunately, I can't give it out for free or I'd give this out to everyone, but it does use a lot of data from an external data provider that I do have to pay for. So this is included as part of the Patreon. There is an iOS app that comes along with it. We're gonna have an Android app very soon as well. So if you wanna check out the Patreon, you get the Discord community, exclusive episodes, as well as this software included. The goal since the very beginning of this portfolio and this channel has been to grow a secondary stream of passive income, money that's coming in that I don't have to worry about. And this helps me center that goal. I'm trying to get closer and closer to earning $1,000 a month in passive income. And I'm doing that by buying these highly productive companies. Now, there's some things that help along with that. The market helps generate dividends every single year. 
In fact, let me pull up a couple more graphs. We've shown a lot of them in this episode, but let me pull up a couple more. This is the buybacks by the S&P 500. Everybody says that they prefer buybacks over dividends because they avoid the tax complication of dividends. But I want to highlight something here. Buybacks are often done at very unfavorable times. Companies do buybacks the absolute most when companies are the most expensive. They buy things at the highest prices, and then when the share price falls, like in the case of 2008, 2009, look how many buybacks they were doing. Companies pretty much halted their buybacks completely. And then what happened when the economy recovered and companies became expensive again, the market went back up, the buybacks resumed to all-time highs. And then what happened in 2020, the buybacks went down half as much. When the market crashed, they went down half as much. So companies routinely buy back their stock when it's very expensive, and then when it's very cheap, they stop their buyback program. This is something that Warren Buffett has even criticized lots of companies for doing. So I actually prefer dividends over buybacks. Let me throw up the dividend graph. It's true that dividends go down during recessions a little, but not nearly to the extent of buybacks. Dividends are paid far more consistently than buybacks. Dividends aren't done in excess during the highs, and then they're non-existent during the lows. Dividends are gradually increasing quarter over quarter. And now we're getting to the point where the S&P 500 on an annualized basis pays over $500 billion in dividends. That's pretty incredible. Look how much the dividends dipped in 2020 and compare that to the buybacks. The buybacks dipped down over half. So I think that dividends, even though they have some tax complications, they're done at much more opportune times. You can use them to reinvest when the market falls. There's some other people that criticize dividend investing with the argument that it limits the amount of stocks that you can invest in. And while that's true, it's really not that limiting. Look at the total number of stocks in the S&P 500 that at least pay some yield some dividend yield. Right now, it's 78%. And normally, it's above 80%. There's about 5 or 6% of dividend-paying companies that temporarily froze their dividend during the coronavirus pandemic. That brought it down about 5%, but normally it's around 85% of companies in the S&P 500 that pay their dividend. So when you're looking at companies that are dividend payers, you're only limited out of 15% of stocks. And if you really like a stock outside of a dividend pair that's not in that 85%, you can still invest in it. You don't have to have a hard line rule to never invest in a non-dividend pair. But generally speaking, I like companies that pay me cash flow. And luckily, the majority of them do that. Another graph that we can look at, and I think that this one is possibly the most motivating graph of them all, is the yield on cost if you purchased into the S&P 500 at different price points. If you purchase back to 1970, your yield on cost would be 67%. That shows how powerful the market works for you. Would you really care about the different market dips, the different drops and recessions and corrections and sell-offs if you're earning a 67% yield on cost on your overall portfolio? I don't think so. If you invested in 1980, 10 years later, your yield on cost would still be 42%. That is incredible. For every dollar you invested, you'd be getting paid 42 cents in dividends. That is an incredible return on your investment. In 1990, it goes to 17.5%. In 2000, it goes to 4.4%. That's even investing right at the height of the dot-com bubble. Then in 2010, it actually goes up because you'd be investing right after the market crash. That'd be perfect timing. It'd be 4.6%. Now, you can draw a lot of conclusions here, but the easiest one is... 
that it's better to be in the market for longer periods of time, generally speaking. The longer you're invested, the more money you're going to make, the higher amounts of dividends you're going to get paid. In my portfolio, I've been buying more and more of an ETF called SCHD. Anytime I can't find an incredibly good deal on a company, I just put money into SCHD. It's such an easy solution. While the stock market has a PE ratio of 21, SCHD's average PE right now is 16. So it's a lot more conservative of an ETF. It doesn't have 25% of its portfolio into big tech. In fact, the biggest holding is 4% of the portfolio. So it's a lot more evenly weighted and diversified, and it has a much higher yield, a much higher dividend yield than the rest of the stock market. And one thing we can look at with SCHD specifically is the 10-year dividend history. Here's what it looks like. The last quarterly dividend was 54 cents. But if we go back to 10 years ago, if we go back to 2012, it was 12 cents. So it went from 12 cents in one quarter to 54 cents. That is dividend growth. These companies continue to pay you more every single year. And the longer you wait on the sidelines instead of buying these companies, the more likely you are to miss out on these continual growth of dividends and these continual gains. So as far as I'm concerned, I continue to invest aggressively. I'm buying all these companies as quickly as I can. I'm reinvesting dividends into the best deals I can find. Anytime I find a stock that I think is a good deal, I'll let you know. So that's my thoughts on market timing and waiting around for crashes. In summary, I think it's a bad idea. I think that there certainly will be crashes and corrections in the future, but we just don't know when. And it may cost you a lot to wait on the sidelines. So I'm going to stay invested. If we do have a correction or a crash, I'll continue to invest and buy many productive companies at a deep discount. But I'm not going to wait around forfeiting gains for that to happen. That's all for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, you can check out the Patreon. There's a link in the description. Other than that, I'll see you in the next episode.